and welcome to another episode of the O3C podcast, coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I am very pleased to be joined by my wonderful friend, Chris Dow. Stabilo boss. Now that's a highlight. And we are chatting about our ardent love of video games. <laughs> Announcement! Announcement! Morning! Please. I've said it now, please. And because I have the same mindset as my two-year-old daughter, now that I've said please, you are contractually obliged to do anything I now ask for under penalty <laughs> of a severe tantrum. Please leave a rating for the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please share a link to the podcast on your social media channels. Please check out our website, o3c.games, and enjoy reading, viewing, and hearing all of that content. Please. Consider a one-off donation via PayPal, via the support page on that website. And please consider pledging a regular donation via Patreon, patreon.com slash O3C Games, from as little as £1 a week. And if you do do that, please do enjoy the huge bevy of bonus content exclusive to Patreons, such as full bonus episodes, deleted scenes and outtakes, exclusive video content, including uncut and ad-free video versions of these episodes, and access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord server. Can you believe it? it took me four years to say please, but <laughs> it's nice to know the, the that. The uh, flying in now. <laughs> it's sorted. It's sorted now. No, no tantrums today, sir. And I can hear the cash register tilling away. So we're back, and this week we are reporting back on our latest Fortnite challenge. Chris is going to tell me how he's got on with his prehistoric double bill of Jurassic Park on the NES and the Lost World Jurassic Park on the Sega Saturn, two brilliant games from my Indeed. childhood. And I'm going to be reporting back on a game that did not feature in our childhood, but it could have done if we were Japanese, because the game I've been playing <laughs> is... <laughs> <laughs> because the game I've been playing is Cave Noir, a roguelike on the Game Boy from 1991. I'm really looking forward to talking about that as well. Before we dive into all of that, though, what have we played this week? What are you buying? What are you playing? Chris, what have you played? As promised, I have finished Arcade Paradise with all of the achievements. <laughs> Oh, King Wash King! <laughs> it's not technically 100% finished, I guess, because you don't have to beat every single goal in every single game. But it says I'm done, and it does require you to complete a few final grueling, grinding tasks in certain in-game games, which are arguably far more work than just asking you to beat each machine fully. So I, yeah. I feel pretty confident that I'm, I'm done for now. Yeah. Overall, my quibbles with this game are so small that they are basically inconsequential. We've already discussed last week that a few of the 40-strong library of arcade machines are a little wonky mm. and that the physical machines like table, football, and pool feel pretty unpolished. There are naturally other machines that I enjoyed more than others. There's, of course, like the odd glitch that means that maybe a task doesn't clear properly or a particular piece of rubbish can't be collected on a certain workday. I also found a game-breaking bug. Oh, dear. What's that? So if you're clearing bugs off a broken machine, yeah, when you finish... If you pause the game as you're coming out of that, the game just hard crashes. Oh, dear. It just stops. Let them know. I have. And they've said it's going to be patched in the next, uh, not the next patch, but the patch after that, it's going to be patched because that ruined my day. Well, my in-game day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, three or four times. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, yeah. it's odd though, because I've played it for 
40 plus hours to beat it mm. and maybe just the times that i was pausing or quitting were, were different because i, I mm. never experienced that it did mean that i lost my achievement for getting a hole in one on wood guy golf oh yeah yeah <laughs> i lost it i lost that and i was deeply upset i do think the game is is a real towering achievement otherwise the narrative stuff we poured over last week is really good the visual aesthetic of the whole thing right down to the grubby crt monitors the jukebox soundtrack which tries to mimic in vogue genres of the 90s like grunge and rave and happy hardcore and then the attention to arcade detail like certain machines like woodgow's adventure being housed in an astro city style cabinet and meteor madness being placed in a sit-down cocktail cabinet like these are all things you will enjoy if you like arcade games like i do there's just so much here i think it's almost impossible for most players not to fall in love if they give it a shot I really have not played much else this week, but (laughs) I did want to give a nod to a few game-adjacent things I've been appreciating or enjoying over the last few days, because I think it's important sometimes to think about any sort of hobby you have is not purely about the act of doing sometimes. So, I, you know, I, I love games, I love playing games, but a big part of my week is thinking about games or reading about games or listening to things connected to games. And there's all these other experiences I have that are very much part of enjoying this community and this hobby so firstly if you are into either video game soundtracks or 90s dance i would say you owe it to yourselves to check out a dj on youtube called dedeco that's d-e-d-e-c-o it's just some guy in his bedroom that produces live mixes of game soundtracks specifically pulling from playstation one and two libraries and every single mix i've listened to is flawless <laughs> like i can't pretend to know how difficult it is to blend things together in this way you know i've made music for a long time but i'm not a dj i don't know how this stuff works but what Dedeco is doing is so far beyond just sticking a crossfade between two songs that they become real treats to listen to and they're also a lot of fun to watch as well because he always adds a closed caption subtitle track to each mix that's kind of a sort of stream of consciousness style commentary oh, wow. where he talks about his process or he talks about his memories of the games he's drawing from or he talks about the general vibes of these platforms and machines and game series. And it's just really, really good stuff. I've had a lot of fun just having it on in the background whilst I'm working, whilst I'm driving, stuff like that. There's some really cool stuff there. The second thing I wanted to mention is going to be one of my semi-frequent nods to the fan translation community, oh, because yes. a Capcom-developed 3DS and PlayStation 3 spin-off to the Lost Planet series called EX Troopers got a borderline professional-level English translation this week. I've been super excited to apply it to the cartridge version of the game that I bought speculatively about eight years ago because it was quite a big release when I was looking for kind of Japanese exclusives to play on my modified system. There's there's not a huge pool, actually, that didn't come West, but this was one of them. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. It seems like the type of thing that might get looked at at some point. And it's taken a decade. <laughs> but now that they've done it, it's great. And the team behind this project is a relative upstart in the community. They're called Fan Translators International. They don't have a huge number of projects behind them. But EX Troopers, it's a real coup because... It had long been seen as untranslatable. It was desired for a long time, but because of the way that text was stored in-game and the number of hard-coded movie files that would need to be exported, re-subtitled, re-imported and everything else, it just didn't look like it was going to happen. But I've now played the first hour with the patch installed and I'm very excited to play more, if only because it's almost like Bayonetta-level cool in its presentation and it looks absolutely incredible in 3D. Like yeah. every time I don't play the 3DS for a few months, I oh, forget no. how much I love yeah. the 3DS. It's so good. And there's been times like because an ongoing mission for the last few years has been to think I don't need multiple copies of the same game. 
one of the things I've tried to do in my collection is think, okay, if I'm going to collect for the Switch, for example, I don't need basically the same game on the PlayStation. So if I've got two physical copies, ship out one of them. A lot of 3DS games that have got ported elsewhere, I sold on, and now I'm rebuying 3DS versions over other platforms because it's like, yeah, it might be a bit more ropey in performance, but something like Resident Evil Revelations that I've only ever played 20 minutes of mm. looks really fucking cool on the 3DS. Best place to play it. <laughs> it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as much as I can play it elsewhere, if I wanted to, if I was going to sit down and play it on pretty much every platform now, I want to play it there if I'm going to do it because it looks much cooler. Even yeah. if it's not sharp, it's not smooth, it doesn't matter. There's something about the handheld 3D thing that just really does float my boat. And that is literally it. Okay, Paradise and some other not games. <laughs> Fantastic. As I said, I've also been playing Arcade Paradise. I've continued to mop up some of the remaining goals and upgrades and stuff like that. And it just, it continues to be just such a lovely game to be in. Yeah. I find it just a very comforting place to spend time so much so that i almost put a bid in to buy a laundrette that i passed in tempe <laughs> this week <laughs> big wash and like i said like the little bugs that there are it's in- entirely forgivable especially like when you when you realize actually what a small team it is that that put the game together they're just a little company in newcastle and yeah. you know their twitter profile has not many more followers than i have <laughs> you know so, so it's just like these guys are absolutely extraordinary and given the the little bit of back and forth i've had with them on twitter about the bugs then they've got real care and like attention to detail they want their audience to have the best experience possible and we're in for a treat with forthcoming patches and fixes and stuff like that and then new content and however they continue to support the game going forward is just going to be an absolute treat and i can't bloody wait one of the big things i did in this last week was take advantage of a black friday deal to oh. buy a new gaming monitor for my office. Oh. And it's proving to be most useful as a wonderful display for my PS5. Oh. So I've made a bit more of an earnest start on God of War Ragnarok, which is so far really good. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> although it doesn't feel next gen at all, which is a shame because, well, it was developed for PS4 as well. So yeah. there's still all of the gaps to crawl through to mask loading times, which feels so annoying knowing they don't need to be there on the PS5. It feels more like DLC than a game that's taken four to five years to make in its own right. But then like the first God of War was the very, very best that that generation could create. So, you know, it's on a par with that and possibly just a little bit more polished. So it's still fantastic and it looks great and uh, the story's pretty cool and I'll probably just chip away at it and chip away at it and get through it. But (laughs) also in a couple of weeks, it's going to be jostling for my attention with The Witcher 3 because that is getting its long fabled PS5 upgrade patch. And I am... It's been a long time, hasn't it? It's been a long time. And to be fair, those guys at CD Projekt Red have rightly prioritized uh fixing cyberpunk uh, uh before they then uh, returned their attention to the witcher uh, yeah. but it'd be really really nice to get that because you know i i mean I, I had a fantastic time playing the first 20 30 hours or so of that on the switch despite being a bit bland and ugly it played wonderfully yeah. and i think the the upgrade comparison will be quite remarkable for me diving into a fresh file of that the other thing i could do to really feel the jump and experience with the witcher 3 is it's just to play it now i've played a fair amount more of pokemon Violet, and you love I, it. I, game no, 
No. <laughs> but I did want to give it a fair chance to get its hooks into me, see if the gameplay is as good as people are saying, that once you get you know into the gameplay loop, then you won't mind about the technical jank of it all. Somehow I've put about 20 hours in. I've got all the gym badges. I've beaten the Titan Pokemon. I've taken out the Team Star Gangs. Those are the three main storylines running in the game. So I've just got like the final bits to do on each of those and then whatever the end game stuff is. But like, honestly, there really isn't anything in the game that makes me want to engage with it other than by just using it as a series of tick boxes to complete. Yeah. And, and and this is from a gameplay perspective as much as a technical perspective. And there is some overlap with the poor technical experience having an impact on some gameplay elements. But also there are some fundamentally boring and unenjoyable <laughs> gameplay elements as well. Like for starters, the story is pretty bland in this, even for a Pokemon game, which is a shame because there are these three main storylines and opportunity for lots of interesting story points and fun characters Bland story isn't new to the Pokemon series. Like I can count on the fingers of one hand the characters that I can remember at all from all of the Pokemon games. <laughs> there is there's one gym leader in this who I quite liked called Larry. He's a leader of the normal type gym who is deliberately bland and boring. He's just this really run down, miserable government assigned gym leader uh, with a briefcase, and he's just fed up with life. And uh, well, we feel you, Larry. Uh, but he's, uh, <laughs> We're all Larry. <laughs> that's played pretty well. And the like, the Titan Pokemon storyline is woven with the story of a trainer trying to save his beloved dog Pokemon, which, being cynical, is a cheap way of making me care about it. Yeah. But also, I'd die for that dog. The, uh, <laughs> the Team Star storyline has a fairly simple but nice anti-bullying message. But like, when you're looking for reasons to play a game beyond other elements... If the story can't suck you in, then that's a real issue, especially as that's the one element that is unaffected by technical performance. Yeah, That's yeah. purely down to writing. But as we discussed in a Playdate episode a few weeks back, something like Lost Your Marbles, that's a narrative adventure, it was incredibly dull because the writing was so poor, whereas yeah. Bloom was immensely successful because RNG Party know how to tell a story. So it's a real shame that even the static text boxes can't take any of the heavy lifting in uh, Pokemon Violet. <laughs> I think the biggest issue I've got is that the the world itself is just boring. Like, not yeah. only is it ugly, but it feels so empty because the draw distance is about an inch in front of your nose. <laughs> so there's no sense of, like, seeing something in the distance or even nearby that catches your eye and draws you over. Like in, you know, in Breath of the Wild, where yeah. you get to like, the top of one of the towers and you gleefully spot all of these little interesting landscape formations and uh, little clumps of trees or something. And you go, oh, that yeah. looks interesting. I want to check that out. And you tag them all and then you go and find them. Like there's, there's nothing like that here. And, and this was an issue that I had with Pokemon Legends Arceus as well, that the environments were just a little vague. And yeah. again, this is down to a design issue rather than a technical issue because you can create interesting environments that don't perform well instead of boring environments that don't perform well. <laughs> I think Breath of the Wild is such a poster child for how to work with slightly limited hardware because yeah. it wasn't that that game was massively populated at every turn and it wasn't that you looked over the horizon there's 8,000 enemies leaping about and, and a billion buildings to clamber up and all these sorts of things but everything was placed with proper purpose and like you say it was enough to just look up and be like that shape is just glinting in the distance and I immediately want to go and see what it is and then it will reveal itself as I get closer. And it's not that the original view was in such high fidelity. I thought, God, what a beautiful vista. Yeah. It was more a case of I'm being drawn 
to something because of good world design. Arcade Paradise is a lovely, comforting oasis of an environment to spend time in. Yeah. Then Pokemon Violet's Paldea region is is the opposite. It feels like a barren wasteland. <laughs> and, and, and let's not forget that one of those games is a laundrette filled with litter and chewing gum. And the other is a full fantasy world filled with incredible creatures. And like tied into this issue and also related to the technical problems is that not only is the world not inviting to explore, but the actual mechanics of exploring are really uninteresting. You get your ride Pokemon from the start, so you can zip around a bit faster, which I'm surprised the game lets you do because obviously going faster doesn't make the game run any better. Every Titan Pokemon uh, that you beat in the game gives your ride Pokemon a Herba Mystica, which unlocks a new move like dashing or swimming or gliding or climbing. And using your various ride Pokemon in Arceus was quite a fun way to get around the environments, but they're also a bit too vague to feel like you were properly gated behind any of these movement mechanics. So you could just like brute force jump your way up cliffs. You were supposed to be only <laughs> able to climb with a specific move. And, you know, it's like in Violet, like I never know whether or not I'm supposed to be able to go a certain way or if I've just glitched my way onto a ledge that's supposed to be too high for now. So, yeah. you know, that's that's all a bit woolly and the frame rate drops another handful when you're doing all of this stuff. So it just feels really awkward and unsatisfying to move around this world. So not only do I not see anywhere I want to go, but I I, I don't want to go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> like, it's the opposite of something like Spider-Man, which yeah. nailed this better than any game I've played, showing you interesting things to go and see and making traversals so incredibly fun that you'll happily swing around for days just to find some backpacks. Yeah. The other thing that makes exploration uninviting, because I, I'm not even halfway through my list, <laughs> is there's no level scaling in the world. So the game tells you that you can go anywhere and do anything in whatever order you want. But that's not really true because the gyms are fixed to certain levels. The team star hideouts are all set at certain levels and the Titan Pokemon are all at a certain level as well. They are in an ascending order. So it's possible for you to go on a wild goose chase thinking, oh, I've got the water starter. So I'm going to go and take out the fire gym first. But then that's filled with like six level 65 Pokemon that's impossible to beat. So like, I felt like reluctance to go to all of the objective points marked on my map because I know that like 90% of them are essentially red herrings and yeah. I can't be bothered to find out. Let's talk terastalizing, shall we? Oh, yeah. Because this is the main gimmick in the game and it is the worst gimmick that Pokemon has introduced so far. It's annoying <laughs> and oh, pretty useless as well. If I've got like a water Pokemon with a fire terror type and a fire Pokemon with a fire terror type, I'm always going to send out the fire Pokemon as a preference in a battle against a grass type. And like the silly crystal hats that the Pokemon get, depending on their type, are really stupid and look like they're hurting the Pokemon's neck under their <laughs> colossal weight. <laughs> Lose a point for that. And this is something that comes into play with like the gym battles as well. You know that the last Pokemon a gym leader is going to send out is going to terastalize. And I thought, well, this would be quite interesting because usually the key to beating a gym is to have a Pokemon with a strong move against the gym's type and plow through. But if the strongest Pokemon was suddenly a different type, then you'd need to have a significant backup plan available to you. But they've done it the other way around. So the gym leader will send out a Pokemon that's not of the gym type, which will then terastalize into the gym type, meaning Aww. you can just beat it how you would have done anyway. That's dumb. Yeah, it feels like a real missed opportunity. Although, to be honest, getting through the gyms is something I'm happy to be able to do quickly because they also set you these really 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 dumb challenges before you're allowed to take on a gym like doing a dance routine 
or rolling a giant olive through a maze yep. or playing where's Wally. Yep. Like all stuff that is just really dull and basic and could easily be skipped over in favour of some fun additional battles in the gym instead or something. But the game just seems to be going massively out of its way to not have any interior locations, which is strange. So like all of the gyms, you only see their foyer. <laughs> That's it. All of the battles and all of the challenge, like the gym challenges, they all take place outside. Love a waiting area. Like 99% of the shops you find <laughs> to go into, you go up to the door to enter the shop and just a menu comes up with what you can buy. There's barely any houses to go into or anything like that. And again, this it just seems strange because... I mean, in my limited knowledge of, you know, how game development works, surely having little interior sections to play through would negate a lot of the technical issues of having to generate an open world around what you're trying to do. Yeah. There have been several times when I just thought, I'm not just not going to persist with the game because I just can't really be bothered to waste my energy on it. But also then there's still something quite comforting about filling out a Pokedex. Yeah. And I found myself just casually playing the game not really engaging with it you know i've got the world cup on or something and i'll just slowly chip away at it i I can't say that that's a fulfilling experience but it's on a par with playing a round of bonza on my phone while doing something else so (laughs) at least there's that and and hopefully i can find a way to filling out this next generation of my pokemon home repository i've heard a few whispers of some of the end game stuff that sounds quite cool so we'll see but i am so disappointed with this game but unfortunately i'm also not surprised yeah. It's exactly the game I feared was coming. And between Game Freak, Pokemon Company and Nintendo, they really need to do something about it. Like, I don't know if there's too much to fix with patches in Pokemon Violet now. Some of the technical creases can probably be ironed out, but a lot of the issues I have with the gameplay elements can't be solved with that unless they restructure the way the game works entirely and say, oh, here you go. Here's a new game plus style alternate mode for users to start a whole new game where it's structured in a sensible way that's fun to play (laughs) i'm very aware that this has been a very very negative tirade against the new game which i mean to be fair i think i've justified uh but i will make a promise uh now to only talk about the positive things in the game next week there are some there are some and and hopefully i'll find some more in the next uh next week or so uh too so yes bear with for the other side of the of the pokey coin After what feels like hours of Pokemon disappointment on your part, Sorry. <laughs> we're going to get back to talking about the games we've been playing over the last two weeks as part of our Fortnite challenge and now Fortnite report. I set you the roguelike Game Boy Adventure Cave Noir, the Japanese exclusive from 91 that had a fan translation at some point, And I hoped that it would kind of stimulate some of your modern appreciation of games whilst also having kind of a retro lens to view it from and you gave me the double act of jurassic park on the nes or game boy you did give me that choice as well or both or both and the lost world it's kind of direct sequel in as much as the film's a direct sequel which was on the sega saturn and also the playstation tell me how you got on with these dinosaurs chris there's two things i always aim to do when starting any retro game Firstly, I never approach a game with the intention to dislike it. Even if a game has a reputation that might surround it, I do my level best to engage with it as is. Like, what is the thing I'm playing now? Don't worry about what someone else has said. Don't worry about someone else has written. I might go on to dislike it, Mm. but that's never the point. Mm. And secondly, 
I try as far as is possible, and I've mentioned this before, to play a game as it would have been presented when it was released. I like having that kind of initial experience of if it was 1993, what was this game going to be like in my hands if I played it then? So if a PlayStation game, for example, only lets you save at save point, that's what I'll try and do. Basically, I'm trying to view any old games as cultural artifacts as much as anything else. So in the same way, when I played X versus Sever, I wanted to view that through that window where developers were scrambling to push in vogue 3d on a machine that didn't have the hardware to produce it so rather than saying it's a bad first person shooter for now think well what did it actually mean to be a first person shooter on that platform in that time and today i'm asking how far does jurassic park on the game boy and nes replicate the feel of the biggest movie on the planet in 1993 and how much does it reflect the approach developers took to movie licenses in the early 90s to very quickly address these two points in order, one, it doesn't, and two, it does. <laughs> so it doesn't feel particularly like Jurassic Park, despite some set pieces. And it does feel very much of its era in presenting a very gamey, bang, bang, bang approach to a film that in reality is categorized in the cinema by far more nuanced light and shade. Yeah, <laughs> you know, It's a yeah. film of tension. <laughs> it's not a film of having a machine gun from the moment it opens. I've never seen Sam Neill wield a bazooka. <laughs> you know, The rhythm of this game is as follows. You walk around stages that are viewed from a top-down perspective. For some reason, you're collecting dinosaur eggs. Destroying dinosaur eggs. You can do either. The thematic idea is to destroy them because well. they're not meant to be breeding. So you're meant okay. you've got to destroy them okay, because all right. life oh, found a way. All right, all right. Come on, remember. When you find or destroy or kick or do whatever you want with these eggs in an area, you are usually granted a key card, which lets you then enter another area. There you'll get more eggs, another key, more eggs, more keys, round and round and round, ever onwards until you finish the overarching stage. And then you're usually given a slight gameplay refresh. So maybe you're helping Tim avoid a Triceratops stampede. Maybe you're rowing Dr. Alan Grant in a dinghy up a stream. Oh, yeah. Maybe you are fighting a T-Rex to protect a helpless Lex. To describe these as a whole like this, you might go, oh, so there's a decent amount of variety then. It sounds like things are kind of refreshed before any one section gets stale. But... <laughs> In execution, that's not quite the case because the egg chasing sections can go on way too long. And especially when you first boot it up, it's never fully explained where you're headed or which building you're going to unlock next when you have picked up your egg quota. But more annoying than any of that, like I could handle that if that was the, the puzzle element of the game that you're figuring the things out. More annoying is the constant dinosaur encounters with little compies and raptors and the spitty dilophosauruses leaping out of every single bush without warning at yeah. a pixel's notice that means that your health is constantly being chipped away second the ammo is finite meaning that you can easily fire your way into totally unwinnable situations yeah and thirdly this is this is the kicker this is like i'm going to turn the game off and did on several plays every pickup in the game is a mystery box that either will heal you or kill you outright <laughs> everyone everyone now the first night i started playing this i was playing on my own i got to a point where i'd got hit by a few of these boxes and i was like okay it's a bit annoying the final one that took me over the edge and i lost my last continue it was like i'm not going to play right now that's that's wearing right. me up i'm going to put it away when i played it a few days later when georgia was sat there suddenly i found it very funny and every time I got hurt, I'd laughed out loud. And it went from being frustrating to somehow just making me laugh. Initially, when I uh, I, I was going to give you a heads up about these when I set you the game. Uh, <laughs> a little blurb written about that. But uh, I thought it'd be funnier to see. I know that you like to view it as objectively yeah. as possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, like I, I know 
I know all of the pickups. Yeah. Because fortunately, it's not randomized. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, so I, I know which ones. Even even now, I know which ones are not to pick up um, <laughs> because it's just hardwired into my brain. But th- this is it. It's like there's no way of checking other than physically checking for the first time you play it. And there was definitely times where it would be the very last bit of a stage. I'd build my last bit of health and a box is right there. And I'm like, I need the health. I'm going into a new room. I need the health. So I've got to, I've got to gamble. I've got to do it every time dead because it knows you're going to do that. So it always puts those in the places where you most need them. When you continue as well, you start at the beginning of the whole stage. So if you are at kind of a further point past it, like you've, you've got through the outside park, you're into the internal, say, dinosaur enclosure of one of these bits, you die, you go back to the very beginning of that whole stage. So you lose quite a lot of progress each time and it can really be maddening. But like you said, the saving grace, I guess, is that booby traps are always booby traps. So technically, once you've been stung once, a further error is then down to you. But I'm not playing this as the only thing I'm playing, as I might have been as a child. And I'm also not drawing out a pencil map for a 30-year-old game. (laughs) I'm just not doing it. (laughs) I'd say that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you get to one of the set-piece sections, the stampedes or the boat ride, for instance, it's a nice switch-up. It's something a bit different. They're they're implemented quite well for a game of this age, like an 8-bit game. It's never plain sailing, though, because then there's some problems where, say, with the Triceratops attack, it's very easy to get stun-locked in place and lose all your life in one fell swoop because they're huge on the screen, very very impressive for the NES, and I'm sure very impressive for the Game Boy as well. But when you're guiding yourself, little Dr. Alan Grant and little Tim alongside you, you're trying to thread these little needle gaps, and if you get struck, okay, you take a bit of damage, but if Tim gets struck tailing behind, it's equal ouchies. <laughs> And that's that's what's really hard to deal with sometimes as well. When it's like, I got out of the way. Tim's the one who's in the way. I got out of the way. I'm sure you can guess I didn't get that far in this game. How far did you get? <laughs> in the couple hours I played across multiple sessions, I never beat the T-Rex encounter at the end of stage two. That, I think, is as far as I've ever got. <laughs> but I didn't not have fun. I'll take that. And I think that's something. Like, yeah. the game looks pretty tasty for an NES game. Also, Jurassic Park has a very, 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 very good soundtrack. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's so good. It's not a soundtrack that creates any sense of foreboding Jurassic Park-style atmosphere. No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. Now, your namesake, composer Jonathan Dunn, who we really should invite on the show at some point just to see if he'll talk to you. He was the lead audio designer and composer at Ocean Software, the team behind this game. And by good golly, are these tracks indicative of the UK-based home coding scene of the late 80s and early 90s where Ocean plied their craft. Because Jurassic Park sounds like the bouncy synth that you hear in almost every Amiga game, almost every Spectrum demo scene showcase, like everything from that time period and from this island. You know, Codemasters games, like all the Dizzy adventures sound like this. The kind of weirdly sort of warbling, high-pitched sort of melodies, things like that. A huge number of off-brand mascot platformers sound like this. And so, again, it was really very funny to hear it applied to a serious property like Jurassic Park. But what a series of bops. <laughs> so good. Big beats, big tunes. Yeah. I, I've been humming them for the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been humming, humming for the them week. For, for three decades. <laughs> so all in all, it's a frustrating game. It's a very difficult game, but one that I think looks and sounds pretty tasty. So that's Jurassic Park. There we go. So we come to the Lost World. Now, the setup for this one, it took a bit of doing and a little bit of research because the Saturn version of the game, which is technically what you set, it doesn't emulate brilliantly. Not sure why. 
but I learned pretty quickly there was also a PlayStation 1 port. It's basically identical. And, and generally, emulation is always much smoother on the Sony platform. It's just a much easier platform to, to leverage, to, to kind of do stuff with in kind of emulation these days. So that's why I played the game. Stage one, you were dropped into a little rocky area as a comp Sognathus. And the game controls like horseshit. <laughs> it is does it really it's really sluggish there is a huge delay in jumping and attacking it is oh no unpleasant it feels horrid oh (laughs) Oh, no so i sat back i thought okay what we can do here i looked online i found that this was a very common criticism of the game on both platforms but there was a special edition version for the ps1 that released a few months later that apparently responded to a lot of the critical feedback and was basically a Lost World 1.1. Okay. So it didn't come out on the Saturn, but it did on the PlayStation. So before you could have a patch, they essentially released a patch a few months later with a different box art. So that's what I started playing. Some immediate changes. Level 1 has now been shifted completely to be a quick introduction to the T-Rex. Okay, cool. Because apparently one of the biggest moans in reviews of this era was that the box art featured a lot of T-Rex, even though you don't control a lot of T-Rex until much later in the original release's level order. So the stage now is like the olive branch. In the same way, a lot of modern games give you like a fully souped up character for the tutorial or the first stage and then immediately strip all your power away. This feels really similar. So the first stage, you're chomping down people, you're chucking them in the air. It's great fun. And then with that level complete, it's back to Mr. Compy. <laughs> yeah. But it does control a little better, a little better, a little better. Is movement now a nice experience? Not at all. <laughs> but, but I've at least been able to make a bit of progress now. And I'm probably only cursing the game for the deaths I endure 50% of the time instead of every time. And that's a, yeah. that's a marked improvement. Now, some of the biggest frustrations with this game, because of these controls, comes from the sheer imprecision of it all. And it's little things like if you were standing facing right, you can't make a sudden jump left. Instead, you have to twist on the spot before going for a leap. Mm. And it's borderline Prince of Persia shit that just doesn't have any reason to be in a more action-focused game like this. Yeah, if you're running and jumping, your dinosaur will usually do a couple skittering steps on landing, which can often just drive you straight into an insta-kill pit. Oh, <laughs> that, that's fun. <laughs> I hate to see it. And collision detection as well, when you're scrapping with other little lizards, is all over the place. So Jurassic Park on the NES was hard, but it at least controlled well. Mm. And this game is probably easier overall, as with a bit of momentum, I was actually able to clear quite a few stages without too much bother. But it just feels so ropey. the main mechanics as well of the whole game are quite strange too so you're graded at the end of every level as to your survivor level and i think this is tied mainly to your aggressiveness and how much damage you've dealt and received right stringing together a series of attacks without taking damage will boost your overall fighting effectiveness and that's communicated by a sort of eye of sauron symbol in the top right that changes color to say how strong you are and you can also collect dinosaur teeth to give you an attack boost However, you are almost guaranteed to take damage in almost every encounter, whether you are the big boy Tyrannosaurus because people are firing fucking bazookas at you or the little compy due to the iffy controls and wonky collisions. (laughs) And so you then have to start feasting on the bodies of your fallen enemies to regain health, which again, you go, oh, you know, that's in keeping with the theme. Dinosaurs preying on each other and everything else. The annoyance here, though, is that any encounter I found the life I would regain would usually be a quarter of what I'd lost. <laughs> and in the time I was playing, I never got any better at this game. I, I never improved in any of the fights. Oh man. And so levels would often become categorized in part by just lucky encounters. So sometimes I'd get through a fight with some raptors relatively unscathed. Others, I'd be on a micron of health 
and barely survive. Like the NES game, though, despite frustrations, the game looks and sounds really nice. Good. And it's limited by the platforms of the day, naturally, because this is a 32-bit machine. It's not like a a super high-fidelity thing. But the animation work on the dinosaurs is really good. You know, from screenshots, I'd always thought that they might even be like sprite characters on a 3D backdrop. But no, they are. No, they're 3D. They look great. The sound work is top-notch as well. You know, it's a disc-based system now, so you've got a full cinematic score. Of the two, though... I genuinely preferred the NES game. Yeah. I'd much, much preferred it. It's less aesthetically accurate to the movie it's following. It's less thematically accurate as well, as we said, with Alan Grant mowing down dinosaurs. <laughs> but the design of the game itself, even if frustrating, feels directed and considered. And I still feel this probably would have come across a little long in the tooth in 1993, as it was quite late in the NES life cycle. And there were definitely games that were kind of starting to feel a bit softer. But the way the game is structured is at least consistent to itself. And I always appreciate that. So the eggs, the keys, the boss encounters with their weird escort demands, it's all quite gamey and it follows game rules. You know, it's very tough, but in theory, if I was playing this as a kid and I had nothing else to play for two months, nothing else to snack on, as I do nowadays, it would be learnable. And like you Mm. did, I could say, don't pick up that box because it will kill you. Do pick up that box because that will give you some life and I could get through it. That sort of thing, even the stupid boxes, it's not uncommon for games of that era, that sort of risk reward thing. It was meant to extend replay, I guess. It was meant to be something else to manage and learn and just part of the overall way you you get through a, a title. The Lost World, for all its ambition cinematically, you know, to try and pump out this reasonably lush visuals, to use sound effects from the films, to play this swooping score behind each stage, it just feels terrible to actually play. <laughs> and I never really got over oh, that. such a shame. Because yeah. getting around and shooting takes a bit of time to get used to on the NES. But again, once you've got the feel of it in your hands... There's no surprises. And so if you fail to avoid an attack or you whiff a shot, it's because you made a mistake. Like you might not have had very much time to react, but you could have reacted. The number of times I died in the Lost World because a jump triggered late or my dinosaur didn't swivel around when I asked it to, or I couldn't regenerate health as I was still on the wrong pixel of a warping 32-bit texture. It's not fun. It feels bad, even in that special yeah. edition remix. But I have enjoyed the exercise of looking at games that I never would have given a sniff to previously and as much as i do think part of your enjoyment of these is now connected to a childhood nostalgia there's definitely games that i would find that for as well bum raiders what's it called (laughs) bomber raid bomber raid (laughs) i am glad though that because you have those memories as a child you've got your love of spielberg's dino romps there will always be things that you hold on to and enjoy and i i just like media that we connect with times of our life like that you know, to remain nicely rosy in your mind's eye. I just would highly recommend not playing The Lost World in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I can feel myself going on a Jurassic gaming binge. Yeah. So there's been a lot of Jurassic games, um, especially given that I had a fantastic time with the latest one, which was Jurassic World Evolution 2. 2. Yeah. Yeah. Play the Telltale game. Oh, yeah. If it works on the Steam Deck, play the Telltale game. All right. Well, Cave Noir is great. Ah. I knew it, I knew it was good, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, from today's perspective, I describe it as the ultimate minimalist roguelike game. Yeah. It, it boils everything in modern roguelike games down to its bare essentials. But of course it doesn't because this came before all of those modern yeah. games by about 20 years. Yeah. So what Cave Noir is really doing is laying down the framework for what the genre will become. Or, or that would be the case if anyone actually played it uh, back in 1991. Um, 
I've done a bit of research into the game, and even though it never made it out of Japan, the English translation ROM has been available for about 10 years now. Yeah. But even still, the game is really only available to those with a particular interest in either importing games or, you know, emulating games and unearthing undiscovered games from history. Or Chris, as those (laughs) characteristics also stack to create. Now, you mentioned a little bit about how the game works when you set me this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll, yeah. I'll go over the basics again. The game basically gives you the choice between fighting through four different dungeons. Each one of these have a different end goal. You can either try and kill all the enemies. You can either find all the gold. You can either find specific pieces of treasure or find and free all the imprisoned fairies. And each of these do make you play the game in a, a very different way. And every time you start a new run, the floors and enemies are randomly generated. So it's different every time. And if you beat the dungeon, the level of the dungeon increases by one. So the next time you face it, it'll be harder. The other thing that is different every time is your inventory that you get. You have eight inventory slots. and That is very, very key. And you're given four random invents. <laughs> Items. <laughs> And you are given four (laughs) random items to start your quest with. But inventory management, that is the key in this game. And and finding out what each of the items do in the game is also key. Very little is handed to you or explained at the start. So you do have to experiment a little bit, see what everything does. Fortunately, it's it's all pretty simple. Health potions, antidotes, invisibility, fire, flying spells. It's not like Binding of Isaac where the ability of an item could be literally anything. Yeah. And especially in the different dungeon types, managing your inventory is is even more important. So the combat-focused dungeon is better suited to saving your item spaces for offensive spells and health potions. The dungeon where you're collecting gold is probably, well, I found the easiest one because picking up gold doesn't take up any sort of inventory space. And you also don't have to fight the enemies in the dungeon. So you can use your inventory space for more strategic defensive items like invisibility spells or boulders that you can use to block enemy movement. The treasure hunting dungeon, which tasks you with finding these precious goblets or orbs, as, as the game calls them, that's a lot more challenging uh, because because these do take up inventory space, which means the more you find, the more careful you need to be as you'll be sacrificing precious inventory space that could be used to blast through the harder enemies a bit more easily. And the further you go into the dungeon, the more you really need that space, the less you have. The fairy freeing dungeon, that's kind of like a mixture of all of this because you need to find keys to unlock the cages that are holding the fairy's prisoner. They take up inventory slots, but only until you find the fairy. And again, this is a dungeon that you could tackle more strategically. And I really, really like that because it can feel like really sneaky, creeping around, staging a jailbreak, freeing all these fairies. Something that I really liked about the game, which also took me a while to realise, is that the fighting in the game is all done through turn-based battles rather than real-time. So for a little while, I was frantically hammering the A button to try and attack the enemies as quickly as possible. Well, yeah, I I thought, why is there such a whopping delay? But (laughs) turn-based battles is, is a really clever way of beating the limited performance capabilities of the Game Boy. There's also strategic enemy movement patterns, meaning that you can avoid enemy fights. And it's really, really good to have that as an option rather than having to hunt down and slay all the enemies in a room before moving on makes you feel a lot more in control of how you're playing, which is surprising and satisfying to have. 
And much like how learning enemy attack patterns is key to survival in a modern roguelike game like Binding of Isaac or a Souls-like game, learning enemy movement patterns is as vital in Cave Noir. This game feels very ahead of its time. It's 31 years old, for fuck's sake. And (laughs) (laughs) unlike something like Quackshot that I said was ahead of its time but didn't really fully realise those ambitious ideas, Cave Noir achieves everything it sets out to do. And it's got incredible replay value in the fact that even if you maximise each of the dungeon's levels, it will still be different every time. And the variety in the dungeons means that you can shake it up depending on how you want to play. I was emulating this on my Steam Deck and uh, I just found myself just casually just playing just a few rounds, you know, just like picking up. Oh, do a few, do a few, but I have to bear this, bear that, bear that. It's just, it's just great. There's a nice sort of mentality that you get into when you're playing it. It's that sort of mix of puzzle solving and adventure and risk taking. And, you know, you've got to work with all of that sort of logic and respond to sort of what the game's laying out in front of you. And it's just always nice to play. This game would be a wonderful fit for the play date. Yes. There are a few games that I've seen or, or played on the Playdate already that feel like this. Like imagine if Cave Noir PD came out as part of season two for the Playdate. That would be that would be a hell of a plot twist. Like, you know, Konami, is it? Yeah, Konami, make that happen, please. <laughs> I think I'd be more inclined to play more of it on the Playdate because playing it on the Steam Deck feels a little like a waste of the Steam Deck's potential. Yeah, uh, yeah. But also, I'm so glad that I have the emulation set up on the deck now that I can properly experience these types of games that would almost certainly fly under my radar and the radar of everyone else. If I'd have had this in 1991, I mean, it's entirely possible that I could have got Cave Noir as the first game I got on my Game Boy instead of Jurassic Park. I would have played it so much. I think it would have blown my mind at that stage. Mm. Because I remember... You know, I enjoyed Super Mario Land was one of the first games I got for my Game Boy. And when I first tried to play Link's Awakening, I didn't have any idea what was going on. Yeah. You know, my my experience with games was you ask you to do more than just avoid things and jump over things or shoot things or the basics of just very simple verbs like that. I wouldn't have known what was happening. Hmm. And Cave Noir does so much in such a an elegant way. You know, it looks at kind of, I guess at that time, there was a big boom for kind of computer role-playing games. I know lots of people in Japan were heavily into like wizardry games and stuff like that in the late 80s. Mm. And I think Konami, when they developed this, thought, that's not going to work on the Game Boy. We can't just do that. But what can we do that's kind of a bit more playful, a bit more pick up and play, but still kind of has some of that mechanical depth. It's just, it's a really well-made thing. And like you say, that it was made 31 years ago is bananas, really. What a game. What a great... It's a, it's a 10 out of 10 Game Boy game. It really is. I win this round then. <laughs> <laughs> so, for your next Fortnite challenge, I would like you to play a game that I haven't played. Oh. It's a game that I think I would like, but I found it a little impenetrable to uh, get started. So I'm hoping that you can and tell me how to. <laughs> the game in question is called Sunless Sea. Oh, okay. It is a tactical survival adventure role-playing game uh, set in a sort of Victoriana, steampunk, gothic horror type world. It's meant to be fantastic with great gameplay and even better writing. And it really drew my attention because it's been compared favourably to physical board games, which I absolutely love. But I have a real issue with board games, uh, and that's learning how to play them. (laughs) For some reason, as soon as I start reading instruction manuals to learn, the information just doesn't stay in my head at all. It's maddening. 
I've only ever been able to learn by being shown and having it explained to me in a way that I understand. A big shout out to Minty and uh, Andy Smith, who are both excellent at doing that for me with board games. So I'm really desperate to play this game. And I'm really desperate to enjoy this game. I think that you'll have a brilliant time with it. I think that you will have a much easier time of understanding or learning what's going on and understanding that uh, than I have that. I don't even think it's that complex, to be honest. I just, my brain's just gone, no, no, you're not, you're not learning this. Sorry. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping you'll find an entry point to enjoy it yourself, certainly, and then help me find one. It's available on Switch and Steam. So play it wherever, wherever you feel comfortable. I will. What am I playing? In something a little bit different to what we've been doing recently, I'm not selling anything weird or particularly out of your usual comfort zone. Okay. It is a 2D pixel art Metroidvania. And similar to what you've just said, I've never played it. Brilliant. I've always thought it looked beautiful and I thought you would appreciate it more than me. So I've queued this up uh-huh. in the back of my head to think, I reckon, I reckon Jonathan Dunn would enjoy that. It is called The Aquatic Adventures of the Last Human. Good title. And I have a strong feeling that you will really enjoy it. So far, the games I've set you have been things I've known reasonably well, or at least played through in the past. But this is as much about you teaching me as it is about me teaching you. And it kind of fits in with this idea that you've also given me a game that you would like to enjoy, but haven't been able to so far. The Aquatic Adventures of the Last Human is currently cheap as chips in the Autumn Steam sale. By the time this episode goes out, it will no longer be the Autumn Steam sale. But if you are quick on the buzzer now, I believe it's about a pound. And I genuinely hope that you enjoy it and that it's an absolute banger. I hope it's something that you get a lot of fun from. Me too. Me too. I've just had a little look at it and it does look, as you say, right up my street. Exactly. Exactly. So there we go. That's what we've played. And that is what we'll be playing. I've set you, Jonathan Dunn, the challenge of installing and playing the aquatic adventures of the last human. And you set me sunless sea. I look forward to playing that. Both aquatic, oceanic, games we haven't played isn't that mad isn't that mad we're, we're in sync we're in sync now if you have enjoyed this we're episode, in sync oh if you have enjoyed this episode or indeed any of our episodes please do consider backing us on patreon at patreon.com slash o3c games and checking out our website at o3c.games if you'd like to engage with us on pretty much any social media platform we exist in the ether as o3c games and if you'd like to shout at us individually about anything we've said this episode about anything we might have said in previous episodes or just about things we might say in the future you can find me at chaz underscore hodges i am clement underscore boo <laughs> and you can find me at jonathan dunn <laughs> lovely we'll be back again next week it's always the same isn't it monday you come to expect it we always deliver have a good one <laughs> sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor sequel cast 2 and friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time hosted by matt bradley shurgy thrasher and alex miller been going since 2009 and we're part of the hyper x podcast network the award-winning Go Nintendo podcast is the best place to get the latest news on the world of Nintendo. We cover the biggest stories, share impressions of the latest games, and answer your burning questions. There's also some general pop culture talk, game music trivia, a heaping helping of silliness, and did I mention our robot companion? I'm the star of the show. Catch new episodes of the Go Nintendo podcast every Saturday on the HyperX Podcast Network.